Well, if you are like most people, you don't like to be underestimated. Uh, you don't want someone to look at where you are from or what kind of job you have or how much money you have and decide that because of those things you must not be very smart or must not work very hard or must not have much to contribute. Sadly, many of us tend to underestimate the apostles. What I mean is we think of the apostles as um, you know, fishermen, uh, uneducated men, and though we probably wouldn't say it out loud, we don't think of them as being terribly intelligent. We don't have a high opinion of their uh, literary ability, you could say. And um, we aren't the only ones, right? Even in their own day, the apostles were looked down upon, underestimated by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, for example, it says... That when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, part of what we love about Jesus is that he chose men to be his disciples that nobody else would have been likely to choose. We love that he chose fishermen didn't have a lot of education. He didn't choose the, the most important, the most influential, the most educated people in his day. He chose normal people. Right? He chose fishermen and tax collectors and so on. But we should not, for that reason, think that when we come to the writings of the apostles, like, for example, the Gospel according to John, we shouldn't think that John is incapable of anything more than simply stringing together a series of stories that he remembers from the days when Jesus was walking with them on the earth. Instead, what we should expect and what we find when we come to a book like the Gospel of John is a simple brilliance. A depth of insight and understanding that has yet to be exhausted, even after nearly 2,000 years of preaching and teaching and writing and thinking and studying. John is capable of far more than we typically imagine. And if we don't know to look for it, we are likely to miss it. When we come to the Gospel of John, we should not think primarily, here's just a normal average guy who was a fisherman who probably doesn't have much to say other than to recount some stories about Jesus. Instead, we should think, here's a man who spent years with the most wise and brilliant teacher who has ever lived on the face of the earth, and surely some of that rubbed off on him. I wonder how much he has to say and to show after spending all that time with Jesus. There is far more to the Gospel of John, to all the books of the Bible, than we usually think. And because we don't think about it, we often miss it. 
So this morning, I want us to see some of that simple brilliance that sparkles in the Gospel of John. See some things that perhaps you haven't noticed that John is up to before. The story we're going to read is incredibly familiar. If you grew up in church, you've been hearing it since before you can remember. But precisely because it's so familiar, sometimes we miss part of what's significant about it. Because we think we know it already. But John has more to show us than we have probably seen before if we just know where to look. So let me read for us the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain. By himself. Now, this is a familiar story to us, a familiar scenario. This is an event that is recorded over and over uh, among the four Gospels. We're told of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's one of the miracles that is most memorable, most popular, and most familiar to us. But it was also a familiar scenario to those who experienced it. Before it had ever happened, the first time it happened, it was familiar to them as well, but for different reasons than it's familiar to us. It's familiar to us because we've heard this story, many of us, since we were little children, over and over and over. In fact, before I even read the passage, if I said, can you tell me the story of the feeding of the 5,000? Most of you could probably have given me the outline, because you've heard it so often. But it was familiar to them, obviously not because they had heard this story before, but because what happened to them in this story was familiar from a story they had heard since they were children, over and over and over. What John is up to in this story is giving us a particular example of what Jesus just said about himself at the end of chapter 5. Remember, the chapter divisions are, are later 
than the, the book itself, right? Those were added later. They're not part of John's plan or any of the other author's plan. So there's not a break there as far as John is concerned. And at the end of chapter 5, Jesus was telling the religious leaders that Moses himself had written about Jesus. And that the reason they were not believing Jesus was that they had not believed Moses. Now, Jesus does not give us any specific examples of where or how Moses wrote of Jesus. Last week I listed several, and we probably could have listed twice as many more. But here, John gives us a particular example of how Moses wrote about Jesus, of what Jesus meant when he told the religious leaders, look, Moses wrote about me, and if you understood and believed what Moses had written, then you would believe me. Notice, for example, that in this story about the feeding of the 5,000, that it says in verse 4 that the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, why does he mention that? This is not the first time that John has mentioned Passover. Passover comes up often in the Gospel of John. But what's significant this time is that Jesus is not near Jerusalem as Passover is drawing near. When it's time for Passover, the people are flocking to Jerusalem where the feast is celebrated. But Jesus is not in Jerusalem at this moment. He's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So why mention Passover? Is it because the reason for the large crowd of people that's following Jesus in chapter in verse 2? Is it because uh, that large crowd is explained by the fact that people are on their way to Jerusalem? Perhaps. But I think more significant than that is that John wants us to be thinking like the people in the story are thinking. And the people in the story, as this miraculous event is unfolding, they're thinking about Passover because it's Passover time. It's like you and I in December. We're thinking about Christmas. Right? Whether, we're, whether it's Christmas Day or not, as it's approaching, we're thinking about Christmas. The Jews in this story, they're thinking about Passover. And Passover, of course, uh, the first Passover happened when the Jews were in Egypt. They were in slavery there to Pharaoh. And God brought plagues on the Egyptians. And the last plague was the death of the firstborn sons. And Israel was protected, delivered from that judgment that God brought on Egypt because they followed his instructions about the Passover. God told them to take a lamb for each household, to slaughter it, and to put the blood over the doorposts of their house. And when they did that, they would be passed over when the judgment fell that night and the firstborn sons throughout the land of Egypt died. And since then... They have been uh, celebrating the Passover uh, year after year with some gaps in there where they lost sight of what they were supposed to be doing. But on the whole, celebrating Passover since that time, remembering how God rescued them from Egypt, how he brought them out, how he uh, delivered their firstborn sons, how he brought them through the Red Sea, and so on. This is what's on their minds as they have gathered around Jesus in this place, and there's a large crowd of them, 
verse 2 says, and they don't have enough food. Jesus looks out on the crowd, verse 5, and he says to Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all of these people? We see even there Jesus' concern and compassion for those who follow him. He's not indifferent to the fact that these people uh, don't have enough food to eat. They've come to listen to him, to, to be healed by him perhaps. And Jesus is concerned for their physical welfare. He's not indifferent to their physical needs. So he says to Philip, where, where are we going to buy enough bread for all these people? Now Jesus had a plan. He wasn't asking Philip because he was confused or didn't know what he was going to do. John tells us that he was testing Philip because he knew what he was going to do. And Philip's reply is instructive because he says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, a denarius, you might have a note in your Bible that tells you like I do, a denarius is how much a laborer would earn in a day. So 200 denarii worth of food is 200 days worth of earnings for a labor. That's a lot of money. And Philip says that wouldn't even be enough for everybody to get a little bit, much less for them all to be full. So there's no way we can buy enough food for all of these people. And they apparently didn't bring food. Whenever they set out following Jesus, whether it was that morning or the day before or whatever, they evidently didn't plan and prepare for being out here with Jesus and needing something to eat. So they don't have food. Jesus and the disciples can't buy enough food for them. There's one boy there, we're told, in verse 9, who has five barley loaves and two fish. But as Philip says, what are they for so many? There's not enough food, there's a large crowd, and there's no natural solution to the problem. Does that sound familiar? It should. And it felt familiar to them. When Israel came out of Egypt, they brought their unleavened dough with them. They crossed the Red Sea. But they had a long way to go before they got to the promised land. There were hundreds of thousands, if not a million or two people with Moses. Where are they going to get enough food to eat? How is God going to provide for them in the wilderness? Pretty quickly, they start complaining about their lack of water. And so God provides water. And they grumble about their lack of food. And so what does God say in Exodus 16? He tells Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. So he gave them manna. Bread they had never eaten, they had never seen. They didn't cook, provide. I mean, they could do something with it once they got it. But that God gave it to them, miraculously, supernaturally. And Exodus 16 says that the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years all the way until they came up to the land of Canaan, it says. So God has demonstrated, even all the way back in Exodus, that He is willing and able to provide for His people, even in impossible circumstances. Now think about it this way. Would God go through the trouble 
to rescue his people from Egypt and then go, oops, I don't know how I'm going to feed you. Sorry, you're on your own. That's not how God acts. That's, that's not what God does. And yet, we often fear that though he's gone through the trouble, so to speak, the, the sacrifice to send his own son to save us, that somehow he's not going to provide for us. That somehow he's not going to take care of our day-to-day needs. That somehow we're on our own. But that's not the case. That's not what the Bible says. It doesn't even make sense to think that way. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He will take care of you. He will provide for you. So here's this crowd, out with Jesus, not enough food, what is going to happen? Jesus gives instructions for the people to sit down. It's not a desert place like I would normally picture. There's, There's green grass there, you know, it's comfortable enough for them to sit down. And Jesus takes the five loaves and two fish that the boy has. And he gives thanks for them. Now, that little piece of information is significant too. right? Because Jesus does not despise the small things that God has provided. He doesn't say, five loaves and two fish, that's not near enough. Who cares that we have that? He acknowledges and gives thanks for what they do have. And then he tells the disciples to distribute it. And somehow, in some miraculous way, it becomes enough and more than enough for everybody. Verse 12 says, when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. We we don't actually see the miracle in the sense of we're not told how the bread and the fish are multiplied. It's not like Jesus has the five loaves and the two fish and he prays and gives thanks. And then when everybody opens their eyes, there are like cartloads of food behind them or something. There's There's no dramatic moment where it all appears. But when they split up and give out the food, there is more than enough, so much more than enough, that the disciples gather up, verse 13 says, 12 baskets filled with fragments. They end up with more leftovers than they had in the beginning. Now, that's significant in itself. But remember, the signs, the miracles point to Jesus. They tell us something about Jesus. And the people who experienced this miracle, their brains were working. They were thinking about Passover, and they were seeing what Jesus had done, and they came to a conclusion that honestly probably would not have crossed most of our minds. In verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, what are they talking about? 
What does that mean? Why did they come to that conclusion? Well, this has already come up once before when some people came to John the Baptist and they said, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? And he said no to all of those things. What was the prophet they were asking about? What is, who is the prophet that they have now concluded Jesus is? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses told the people of Israel what God told him. And it was that God would send them a particular prophet. This is what Moses said. He said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then a few verses later, God says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, there were lots of prophets that came after Moses, right? Lots of prophets. But none quite like Moses. In fact, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says, after it records Moses' death, it says, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. What was unique about Moses was that Moses spoke with God face to face. He had an intimate relationship with God. He did signs and wonders, or rather God did through him, signs and wonders that were uh, tremendous, unrivaled in Israel's history. Not only in Egypt, but also in the promised land, or on their way to the promised land. Nobody, Deuteronomy says, has, whenever this ending was written, nobody has arisen yet like Moses. In other words, that promise, that prophecy from Deuteronomy 18 about a prophet like Moses whom God would send, it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And so a prophet like Moses is going to have to be a prophet who knows God on a level that is unusual, even among those who speak for the Lord. It's going to have to be someone who performs signs and wonders by the power of God. The only person in the Old Testament that even comes close to this description is Elijah or maybe Elisha. But even their ministries pale in comparison to the ministry of Moses. It's not until Jesus comes on the scene that a prophet as great as Moses arrives in Israel. And what is it that causes the people to recognize that it's him? He miraculously provides bread to a multitude of people. Who else has done that? Only Moses. 
Nobody else has done that. And so when they see the sign that he has done, they recognize who he must be. The echoes of that feeding of manna in the wilderness are echoing in the people's minds as they look around at what has taken place. In Exodus 16 it says, This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And what is happening here? Jesus tells the disciples, after everyone has eaten as much as they can eat, gather up what is left over so that nothing may be lost. The first Passover the exodus from Egypt, even the manna in the wilderness, all are there to point to Jesus and what He will do and who He is. Later in the chapter, the people who experience this are going to say to Jesus, when He calls them to believe in Him, they say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And here's what they say. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, they're saying, we saw what you did the other day when you fed thousands of us with bread that seemed to come from nowhere. If you want us to believe in you, why don't you do what Moses did? Because, you know, when Moses was around, we got free bread every day. That would be pretty great. Jesus responded by saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, even the manna is there to give us a taste of who Jesus is. Remember how God provided for his people day after day through bread that rained down from heaven. Jesus says, that bread is there to point you to me. I'm the real, true bread that has come down from heaven, not to keep you alive for another day, but to give you eternal life. Anyone who believes in me, who comes to me, Jesus said, he's not going to hunger or thirst anymore. Meaning, spiritually, what you long for, what you desire, what you were created for, to be in fellowship with God. That desire to have your sins forgiven and to be loved and accepted and known and welcomed by God. I will give you that if you will come to me. I have come to give you life. I am the bread of life. I am the true bread from heaven. And all you need is to come to me and trust in me. Now the people recognized who Jesus was, but like many others in the Bible, even though they got some of who Jesus was right, they also got some of it wrong. They were right that he was the prophet promised by Moses. He's the one we should listen to. 
God's words come from His mouth because He is the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. They were right that He was the prophet, but they were wrong in how they responded to Him. Because verse 15 says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. Why did they try to make Him king? And why did Jesus refuse? See, that's where they got it wrong. They wanted to make the prophet king. And that makes sense. Moses, though he was a prophet, was also a sort of king. In Moses' day, Israel didn't have a king. God was their king. But Moses functioned in many ways like a king. The buck stopped with Moses. He was the leader, right? And later, King David, the greatest king that Israel knew, the greatest human king anyway, was also a prophet. He wrote the Psalms. Peter himself calls David a prophet in Acts chapter 2. So the idea of a prophet and king, it makes sense biblically. And Jesus is both prophet and king. But he refuses to be a king on the people's terms. Probably what they wanted Jesus to do when they wanted to take him and make him king by force. They wanted him to kick the Romans out of the land, restore Israel's independence, set them free from those who were oppressing them. And that's just not what Jesus came to do. That's why Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. He is a king. He does have a kingdom. It's not the kind of kingdom that the people wanted him to have, though. There's no fighting involved, no war, no rebellion against Rome. Instead, the king was the lamb whose blood was shed so that God's judgment might pass over his people. That's what John is telling us. It's significant that this happened at Passover because this is what the Passover is about. It's about Jesus coming as bread from heaven, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's about Jesus coming to give life. It's about God providing what we could not provide for ourselves. Life, even eternal life. Salvation. It's a gift. Just like the manna in the wilderness that Israel didn't deserve, that Israel couldn't have dreamed up, and they certainly couldn't provide for themselves. In the same way, God has provided for us in a way we couldn't have dreamed up, that we couldn't provide for ourselves. He's given us His own Son. And if He's given us His Son, What else is there that we need that he will fail to give? Let's pray.